One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Anoush. And welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week we ask whether or not there will be a new political party. We talk about our favourite reality TV shows. And we answer like a million of You Ask Us. Well, Stephen is once again resting in his fur-lined, atmospherically controlled box. So I'm joined by Anoush Shikadian for this week's podcast. And we thought we'd... I have to say a subject that I'm approaching with no great enthusiasm... But that's no reason to not to do it because it is it kind of unlocks a lot of other questions about British politics, which is, is there going to be a new political party? This is an old question, isn't it? Because ever since Labour started going along with Brexit, everyone keeps asking about when's this new party going to emerge. And I remember before the election, people kept saying Labour MPs are going to go and join the Lib Dems or, you know, George Osborne, Nick Clegg and... Chukar Amuna are going to start a new party. It's not really a new question, but it's surfaced over the summer because I think there's been some talk by uh, James Chapman, who used to be the political editor of the Daily Mail, who did work very briefly for David Davis and is now fully on the Remain wagon. But he's been talking about starting a new party called the Democrats, and he's been very vociferous about this idea. And he's actually gaining quite a lot of traction on Twitter for it, although I don't know how much that's translating into real life. Well, given that I read that Barack Obama's tweet, which was a Nelson Mandela quote, was the most liked tweet ever and it had 2.3 million likes i think we can assume that in terms of active twitter users twitter is the smallest of small paddling pools so yeah that's an interesting point to it but this kind of question keeps coming around because if you were going to start political parties from scratch then they probably wouldn't be the kind of mixture of, of things that you have now so one of the things that's really been getting on my tits quite a lot is the, this idea now that the worst thing to be is a centrist you know how it's become this sort of term of abuse has moved on from being you're a Blairite or a Bitterite if you're really kind of jazzing around with it to now saying oh centrist centrist one which seems to mean essentially usually conservatives and it's people who are relatively happy with the status quo but it doesn't make any sense take UKIP which is now kind of completely busted flush as far as it looks. There was a party that actually was quite protectionist on the economy, but very, very anti-immigration. And then it had the sort of Carswell wing that was very libertarian and very free market and everybody should be left to kind of, you know, sew shoes for pennies by themselves. So where was that on the kind of left-right spectrum? Because of its immigration views, we always saw it as a right-wing party, one that was challenging the Tories. But it actually had some of the, the left-wing economics that then Theresa May then tried to adopt when she came in as sort of saying, actually, we believe in a strong state you know we're not kind of laissez-faire libertarians at all yeah that's so true i think there's almost no such thing as a centrist party because if you look at the lib dems they have the same kind of splits so that people don't use this kind of archaic language anymore but they have the orange bookers who are the slightly more 
right-wing oh, I remember liberals. the orange book. Yeah. yeah, and then they also have, you know, people like Tim Farron who wanted to try and win over all the metropolitan areas with his liberal politics, but then couldn't pull that and off Tim because, Farron, of, his, because yeah. of his own views. Yeah, exactly. He was very pro-Europe, but also very socially conservative. Yeah, exactly. And that personally. didn't work. And then there's MPs like, and well, he's not an MP anymore, but, you know, MPs in places like Cornwall for the Lib Dems who hated the idea of this Remain-focused manifesto because they represent areas that are largely rural and largely don't support staying in the EU. So it's a completely split party in the same way that people thought Labour would be split between the beer drinkers and the wine drinkers before the 2015 election. Well, I remember I was thinking weirdly about going back to 2013 when we had the New Statesman centenary and our debate was, did the left or the right win the 20th century? Mm. And we had a lot of contributors and you can still find it. It's an interesting piece that's online. And really the consensus that emerged from that was capitalism won, right? Socialism or communism, even in countries which are nominally communist, aren't really and even China's yeah. got quite market-based reforms in some areas now so you know capitalism defiantly won the, the kind of rights but not in a kind of extreme we're not now maybe in quite such in the extreme 80s version although people would still say neoliberalism won yeah but on the social issues people are now much more relaxed about gay marriage for example much more relaxed about women's rights so the cultural and economic split is is really obvious so actually most people don't have one completely perfectly drawn set of beliefs all the parties are kind of coalitions in this interesting way but we do have a system and this is again the point that comes up every time we talk about a new party we have a system that's incredibly hostile to new parties yeah i mean i can't see a new party being successful but also what does a new party mean to people in britain so i think anyone now in britain who wants a new party probably is not happy with brexit doesn't really like jeremy corbyn and thinks the lib dems are uninspiring and are never going to have an interesting leader who they can get on board with so it's sort of like defined by what it's not rather than by what it is and i also think that and that's, why, that will never win elections. Uh, why everybody's so key on the left that the, 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 see the Labour Party as the vehicle mm. for, for change because it is the biggest available chunk that kind of you buy in a huge amount of history, a huge amount of brand recognition, and you've got all that to start that you then build something else on top of. Well, exactly. Even when all of these old Labour grandees were despairing before the general election this year, thinking that Labour was going to be destroyed, most of them who I spoke to, because I interviewed a few for one of the issues that we did a while back, said, but I would never support the party breaking apart I would never support a new party because they've seen what happened in the past when that when they tried that and one of the things that's really interesting is everybody kind of says, well, of course, if we have proportional representation, it would be much easier to break this kind of gridlock. But also, if you look to Scotland, where they do have a form of proportional representation in Hollywood, they have a constituency vote and a list vote, which was designed, actually, to give you a much bigger spread of parties in the range of opinions. It was kind of consistently broken for a long time. The SNP managed to get an overall majority, which wasn't supposed to happen. So there are other things that weigh against new entrants to, to the party to system. And I think UKIP is a really fascinating example example of a party which arose out of a specific moment and is now really struggling and I sort of see UKIP now moving more back towards a BNP kind of space it is becoming a much more hardline anti-immigration party that's causing you know resignations for the whip you know from there so people are really unhappy about the direction that it's going but that is a space that consistently asked to be occupied in British politics but luckily only a small space. Yeah, and that's good. And I think the wisdom now is that people are moving towards extremes. So looking at Jeremy Corbyn's success and him actually winning the Labour leadership election, people are like, oh, we don't want, you know, any wishy-washy third way. We want Jeremy Corbyn. Or on the other side, we want Donald Trump, that kind of thing. But I don't think that's actually
really true in this country because like you say UKIP's manifesto most recently was really extreme it was very anti-Islam and it wasn't couching it in the kind of Nigel Farage polite racism language and people just don't want that yeah and I think that UKIP did hoover up a lot of votes from the BNP because it was sort of seen as somebody who's expressing the concerns that people have but in a tone and language that didn't make them feel uncomfortable and that's always the problem when the the Tory party particularly flirts with that very hardline socially conservative anti-immigration line people in the middle begin to start going what's that yeah I don't like that smell like Zach Goldsmith's mayoral campaign which just went from dog whistle to like foghorn or whatever actual <laughs> human whistle loud. yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah I think and that's... people just didn't like it and I think that's really an, an interesting example of you know about self-image as well about what people want because Social scientists have this huge problem when they're trying to survey people, for example, on attitudes to race, that people just will not self-report the stuff that they do. And looking at Trump, that's a really interesting example about the fact that how many people... BuzzFeed ran a great piece about what they called the Ivanka voter, which mm, was women voting for Trump because they liked Ivanka because she they thought that she was kind of respectable and ladylike. And actually, in terms of their value system... As a va- you know, representation of feminine values, she appealed to them a lot more than Hillary Clinton, who they saw as being quite mannish and you know, overly ambitious and bitchy and mean and hard. The reasons that people tell themselves they're voting on are often very not the same things that they are in fact voting on. Yeah, and I did a piece a while ago looking into the EDL, and most of them say that they're not racist. They will not define themselves as racist, and that's quite... My favourite thing about the EDL is that Tommy Robinson, who used to be the leader of the EDL, used to run a tanning salon, so literally his job was making people browner. (laughs) (laughs) I think Daniel Trilling once said that to me, that this is a kind of a curious thing for somebody who's so obsessed with whiteness. The only thing that makes me want to support a centrist party is the fact that Matt Zarb cousin, Twitter warrior Mm. and a fervent Corbyn supporter, Matt Subcousin, says he will change his name to Melty McMeltface. (laughs) Well, now that's democracy. If if the Democrats win a single seat, which I think for the gaiety of the nation would be great to watch. Last week we ran a 90s comedy week and this week, as you, and you've been running like your own personal reality TV week. I think and it's, someone did a tweet saying, at this point, does the New Statesman website look like a Harry Potter message board that's got out of hand? And then they had all our headlines about Harry Potter and I thought, maybe we have written too much about Harry Potter recently, but it's got very big political implications. But you've, you've written about Love Island and now you've written about Don't Tell the Bride. And I thought it'd be a good chance for us to talk about what we actually watch on TV rather than, again, picking up the theme of the first thing, what we say we watch on TV, Mm, (laughs) serious Tarkovsky, mm. Um, and then actually what when the end of a long day in front of the New Statesman website, what do you want to go home and watch? And tell me why you loved and now no longer love Don't Tell the Bride. I am a big fan of the series. It's been going for 10 years. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Everything that I like has been happening for 10 years, 10 or 20 years. It's always a round number. The financial crisis was 10 years ago. It's crazy. But yeah, I used to really enjoy the show because the premise, if for those listeners who've never watched it, which I'm sure our very intellectual New Statesman listeners never have. It's a high-minded subtitled Korean drama. (laughs) (laughs) Meditating on existence. So the groom is put in charge of planning his entire wedding day in three weeks. And of course, the punchline of this is a man trying to organise something. It literally doesn't go beyond that. That's why I feel a bit bad about watching it. Fundamentally, it is the kind of... What's that other... What's the children? TV show that rests on the premise that men are useless. 
I don't want to say pingu, but I don't mean pingu. What's the what? It's very patriarchal. <laughs> in but basically, the idea that that men are kind of can't be trusted to to run households. You know, when they have... I think everything is like that, isn't it? Wife swap, super nanny, everything plays off the man being a bit incompetent, and the wife being a shrew. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Who will be like, well, I'm not marrying you because these balloons were two centimeters further apart than I've been envisioning <laughs> since I was twelve. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's based on like the bride to be being very sour faced and obsessed with the dream wedding and and humorless and the man being completely incompetent and selfish and can't control how he spends his money what always used to get me and i've had this conversation now probably it's been going for so long with several partners of mine that <laughs> wouldn't you just have a thorough briefing I session know. beforehand okay. hand over a sheet of a4 that goes look here's the color scheme <laughs> yeah pretend this is my size <laughs> that you're this going is my name to, that you're going to go neon <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly so the whole thing is very contrived and it is a bit sexist but i do enjoy watching it and unfortunately in recent years probably the past couple of years it's gone the way of Big Brother where they try and contrive hilarious situations by putting in weird characters and making sure that they do wacky themes for their weddings like you know making the bride parasail or doing it in a swimming pool or having a neighbours themed ceremony which the zombie one recently. a couple of years yeah, ago was zombie quite, one. that's actually quite good I quite enjoyed that because yeah. she did look genuinely terrified yeah. <laughs> when she arrived at some completely abandoned warehouse and then someone yeah. covered in ketchup leaped out at her yeah but my point is so ones like that were sort of one in a million back in the old days whereas now every single wedding is like a publicity stunt and I think the artifice ruins the sort of beauty of the programme which is how you see the bride even though she's horrified by this sort of motorway service station where she's having her wedding she still loves him enough to sort of get through it and they have a lovely dance but that's know? the kind of sugary diet model of tv which goes wrong i mean we're talking about fraser because of the piece yeah. that i wrote and and the fact that fraser did all that kind of emotional hard work meant that the episodes that were just essentially classic french bedroom farces that was light relief from something you know whereas if your diet is only sugar yeah. that becomes nauseating after a, a while and the same things happened to too many reality tv shows i think well that's, that is the classic sign of a, a reality tv show gone bad yeah and i think that's why actually love island is so popular because all the people on it are, I mean they're not normal in the sense that they'll go on this program and sort of have sex on live TV but they are vaguely normal they're not that eccentric you know yeah, and they're not there to cause trouble they're there to try and just like get off with someone <laughs> one of the things that I still can't quite believe happened in my life is that they'd once did a round of Celebrity Big Brother that had John McCurrick the racing commentator oh, yeah. and Jermaine Greer <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I just remember this when I switched on Celebrity Pointless and one of the teams was Kathy Lett and Jermaine Greer and I thought, Jermaine Greer is really quite game for somebody who... Was she not on that diving programme as well? Was she not a judge on... A splash? Yeah, was she a judge? She was a judge on something really unlikely. Maybe I'm making that It's like her who's who interests, like (laughs) the menopause, (laughs) patriarchy, (laughs) reality TV. But the same thing happened with one of Amelia's favourite programmes, Ramsay's Kitchen Nightmares. Indeed. In which I feel, this is the thing, and actually they did another version with the guy who ran Polpo called Restaurant Man a couple of years ago, which was much more low-key and actually featured useful restaurant advice. Mm. And that's what the early original premise of Kitchen Nightmares was that there was some stunty stuff that was obviously done for TV but he would classically go into somebody who had like a nine billion item menu and they were all having to microwave it all and he'd say just do three starters three oh, mains always, and three puddings time. have a lunch Good, special that's honest 
British food. Yeah, exactly. No one wants a scallop and black pudding. Yeah, yeah. And then the American version, where they were totally unconstrained by any concept of reality, just featured him going, you burned yeah. the people while I they cried the in their pizzeria version. in Queens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that's the problem. What other reality TV shows do you watch? Well, I really like some of the old ones, you know, like I, I, I used to love Wife Swap. I know that's not on anymore, but um, I, I think I like the old school reality TV more than the new the new school. Um, I love The Apprentice. That's my favourite programme. So... And I'm glad to hear that it is coming back for yet another series this year with the format unchanged. (laughs) There is a fundamental problem with The Apprentice, though, which is that I don't believe any of them are any good at business or that Alan Sugar is any good at business. No, but that's fine. That's not the point. That means that they'll be perfect business partners. It's true. <laughs> I just from vivid memory of it in about I don't know an, an episode from about 2011 where he started going like oh yeah I heard this one Simon or it, it was never to be called one of those names like Simon because I, I think property is going to be a really big thing and you were like mm-hmm. yeah I love every te- every every series social media is getting big guys <laughs> tech is a thing yeah, go and do some make some wearable tech <laughs> and then they're there with like an LED and a Christmas jumper. <laughs> But I, I love The Apprentice and anyone who bothers to read my articles will probably know that by now. I do love The um, Apprentice in enormous amount. I, what do you watch? I have a soft spot for Take Me Out. Oh, I like that, yeah. Because it's so cheerful. We actually, weirdly, Alan White, who's now news editor at BuzzFeed, a very serious job, once wrote a brilliant piece for us about how it, like amazingly patriarchy smashing Take Me Out oh, really? is because all the women get a chance to reject the guy, right? Mm. So it has this thing about, yes, it looks like he's choosing them, but actually you'll see that a lot of lights go out. You know, the kind of, the clip plays where his mate goes, oh yeah, you know, Steve's just really into banter and he goes pew, pew, pew. <laughs> yeah. just a really gutting moment so I really like that Project Runway I really like I've never watched any of the Runway ones it's got a kind of the same vibe as MasterChef the professionals in mm-hmm. that everybody involved in it is good at stuff mm-hmm. and they do actually sometimes produce interesting stuff and I'm just getting into Drag Race I've never watched a single episode of Drag Race Series 9 begins with Lady Gaga coming in dressed in drag and, okay. and it, I, yeah it's just very politically incorrect but I really <laughs> weirdly Lisa Kudrow was also in it for oh, no wow. apparent reason that's quite a cast yeah she just kind of came in and did that weird phoebe laugh which i never realized was strange <laughs> at the time but now in a kind of 55 year old woman seems a bit mm. borderline yeah i think that's probably all that I, I i'm sure there are hundreds more things that i watch and i'm gogglebox gogglebox is so good I worry for the Do day you that you start Gogglebox... watching TV thinking that you're on Gogglebox and start saying things that you think are witty because you think the cameras. If you watch it for too for too long, you start doing that. And yeah. you're like, I'd be amazing on Gogglebox. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's just me. No, I know I do that. And I do that. And I do an even more embarrassing thing, which is that I rehearse conversations I'm going to have with people. When I do radio interviews, for example, I have to prepare for the radio interview mm. by doing the radio interview to myself Oh, beforehand, I do that. Yeah, in the shower. Which always makes you feel like you're having a sort of psychotic break. But that's probably not an experience that normal humans share. <laughs> Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
And now for a segment we like to call... You Ask Us! Yeah, maximum enthusiasm. I put out a call on Twitter for ideas for what we could talk about that weren't Brexit, which made someone very cross. And they were like, why won't you talk about the biggest issue of our time? And I was like, because I'm bored of it. Uh, Because we're talking about take me out. (laughs) Yeah, excuse me, I've got important stuff to do. So let's whip through some stuff and we'll just do like one sentence answers. Alison Bennett asks, how should the social care crisis be tackled now? In one sentence, Anoush. A bit like how Theresa May wanted to do it, actually. Is that controversial? I think that is controversial. I think how Andy Burnham wanted to do it is the better way, right? So there are... The original. Yeah, so you can have a certain amount taken off your estate, but not potentially everything you own down to a certain amount, right? That was the other way The death tax rather than the dementia tax. Yeah, I don't know. This is one of the things where you feel like you're really out of touch. You know, you have certain opinions, like, that are kind of just totally way off the political mainstream, and you think, I'm not going to mention them because it's not worth the grief. So mine include like that. I sort of love the Queen, but I think it's really weird that we have a monarchy. And I just really don't know how I feel about that. But it's just really not worth writing because only 5% of people really care about the issue and they're all incredibly angry. Or the fact that I'm really fine with inheritance tax. I think probably because it's a long way. I feel like it's, I hope it's a long way away. I just think I don't, after I'm dead, I just don't care. Maybe if you've got kids, you start being much more... I sort of feel like children have it easy. Yeah, this is the thing. It's weird that it's so unpopular because most people don't inherit a huge amount. Yeah, I know. Are Ramonas the most hated group in the UK? No, it's centrists. We covered this earlier. That's fine. Yeah, centrists. Here's one that's you put your hand in the bear trap. John Wood says, seen people compare Trump's statement on Charlottesville to Corbyn's words on Venezuela. What are your thoughts? (laughs) Well... John, thank you very much for writing in. No, I think it's it is that you know there's violence on both sides, or I condemn all forms of racism. It is a bit all lives matter, isn't it? Um, that, yeah. and, and then obviously they're on different ends of a spectrum, but it is the same spectrum. Yeah, I really did feel like that actually. That the Trump words about Charlottesville really exposed why so many people were annoyed about the Venezuela statement. Because in on one hand you have government forces with all the panoply of resources mm. available to them, and on the other side you had p- protesters. Exactly, um, yeah. And I think it's pretty easy to say that what we're, you know, only one side have got sort of, not necessarily tanks, but like, you know, heavy armaments, then it's probably them who are going to be doing most of the violence and the repression. So you probably need to kind of calibrate your response accordingly. Yeah. What chance is there of the political statement at Stormont being reserved in the autumn? Edridges, I would say a relatively small, weirdly, Northern Ireland has now become one of those subjects where it's not working, but everyone's sort of agreed that they, they'd really like it to be sorted out. So it will be sorted out Mm. and from the people that i've talked to they have thought that actually the dup deal is a strong incentive to bring Sinn fein back to the negotiating table because they won't want to be seen that the dup are there to dish out loads and loads of pork to everybody and therefore you know look quite generous yeah they want to have part in spending that money yeah yeah what if any big domestic non-brexit related legislation is the government planning on doing in the autumn says aaron ellis well i think we've spoken about this on a previous podcast where we were talking about what's going to happen to austerity you know, will Philip Hammond carry on cutting and freezing or will he backpedal on that? I, I think, think that's going to be a big debate when we come back to the budget. Yeah, you haven't really got that many... I don't think... I'm trying to think of anyone else in the cabinet whose instincts are cost-cutting. You know, in the way that... Well, exactly. Part, Chris Grayling, probably, but, I mean, he was very happy when he was in charge of probation just to offer that up. Yeah. Um, or Ian Duncan-Smith has now gone from the cabinet, you know, was also very happy to make big welfare cuts. I can't see anyone else... And that dissent in the cabinet hasn't gone away. It's just recess, so we're not hearing from them. So I just presume that there will be some space for him to kick back his deficit reduction targets yeah. and give himself more headroom. But, yeah, he's still got some really tough decisions to make. Another one to put your hand into the bear trap. Matthew Hexter says, could you talk about Sarah Champion's son column and whether it was the right or wrong take? 
<laughs> Sarah Champion wrote about a gang of, I think, 17 men who were Asian but from a range of different nationalities and one white woman and saying that we need to kind of talk about race when it comes to these grooming gangs. I have very complicated thoughts on this, which probably aren't easily expressed in the medium of a podcast which is first of all my unfashionable opinion number one is I think it was probably wrong to prosecute the woman involved as an accomplice as a conspirator because she was 17 when it started when you read the details of her family Mm. she came from a really tough background she was obviously showered with a lot of attention I think she was groomed herself um, really and then she kind of came a kind of procuress for these other guys and I think that's I think it's very tough to treat her at the same level as a man in his Definitely. 40s who was raping children and in all these cases you do get someone who is sort of groomed to be the mediator yeah. rather than the vi- victim I mean she's still a victim but yeah yeah, and, and it's the same in the Rochdale case. As and well. there's been some. Jim McGovern did a really good sort of docudrama about this idea about what you do when, with gang prosecutions, and you try and get everybody in. Even so, if a gang commits a murder, there is a statute that says not just the gang member who puts the knife in can get charged with murder, but like everybody who's you know involved in the planning of it or complicit in the gang. So it is a dragnet that brings in a huge number of people. Mm. So I also think that. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how useful it is to talk about race in terms of the perpetrators because there are so many types of domestic violence and, and male violence and, and getting hung up on the idea that one group does it more to the exclusion of others is not the right way to look at it. But you might say that in, in different communities it expresses itself in different ways and that's the interesting Yeah, thing. and I think that's... I remember going to Rochdale and talking to Simon Dantrick about this a few years ago and he was saying that you do have to address it otherwise you get more um, malign forces moving in to fill that vacuum for you. So you might get you know far-right people going up to wherever these things have happened and, and just stirring up hate because that's their ideology and this is their opportunity to use it. Whereas if you're the MP for that area or if you're some of the authorities, then you have to look at the character of the community and say, we've got some parts of integration here wrong. So I think there is a case that you can say that in some of these cultures that you're talking about, there is a feeling that, you know, you have women at home who are kind of the good women and that's how you treat them. And then you have, you see white women and you see them as sluts. And there was some evidence in the trial of saying, you know, white women are this, they're whores, you know, they're just to be treated like this. But, you know, that's that's more interesting to look at and from a structural perspective in the same way that you would look at, say, the way that the Catholic Church enabled decades of, well, like what are the what are the things that people tell themselves to make the, this seem okay yeah and what are the structures that prevent anything being investigated and reported and how can we look at them mm. but that's a much more subtle conversation than we need to talk about asian grooming gangs right at which point you've just you know dog whistled a mile high exactly yeah a final light one this is what counts as a light one on the <laughs> estates podcast is it okay to punch nazis <laughs> well i was asked this this morning i was put on the spot in our web meeting and i i said that i wouldn't but that's because i was literally thinking about my own strength <laughs> i don't think i'd be very good at it and i probably get punched back pretty quickly it's but on a small nazi and work your way upwards <laughs> yeah. my instinctively i'd say that if you do start using violence against violence then you give the people who are in the wrong the opportunity to sort of mark you as, as an aggressor or as someone who's down to their level but then i've never been on the receiving end of racist abuse yeah i think that's the difficult i I do think that the hallmark of a civilized society is that the state should have a monopoly on violence and i Mm. think if you're going to get into a violent confrontation with people on a practical level you really want to make sure that your side wins and actually the reason obviously this came up is because of trump's comments about charlottesville and the problem with that is that once you start saying what he you know that is going to there is going to be a hell of a lot more 
weapons on the side of the people who've got militia, you know, I mean, private militias. And also, as we know, America's got a, a deep race problem in its police force. I think that's a really difficult thing to, to deal with. And any kind of violence on the other side, I mean, you already have the comments from Trump saying, well, you know, what about, yes, you want me to condemn the alt-right. What about the alt-left, you know, who mm. are coming out with baseball bats? Yeah. And I think he is desperate to turn it into, well, actually, this Black Lives Matter protest got quite rowdy. So therefore, it's entirely justified to have men marching around with, you know, swastikas and assault rifles <laughs> yeah, exactly. around the streets of America. But it, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a question that's ever truly resolvable at a kind of global scale because obviously if you look back through America's history in the civil rights movement it wasn't all non-violent protests yeah, there was a big strain of that but you can't make hard and fast rules about it no exactly and also to be fair no one's really buying Donald Trump's um, I, I mean I'm sure the people who, who subscribe to that ideology are but no one serious is, is, is buying his there's violence on both sides even if there's been a bit of scrapping on both sides so you know it maybe it's, it's worthwhile like the state angle is a bit difficult because you have prejudices in, in yeah. state. And it depends whether or not you, you fundamentally trust your state or you believe yeah, that your exactly. state is a, as we were talking about Venezuela earlier, whether or not you believe your state is a repressive one. And there's plenty yeah. of states around the world in which I I think, you know, a lot of us could see that if we were living in those states, we would think that we didn't have to kind of comply with their their dictates. Exactly. But, um, but I'm not sure whether or not America is there yet. I mean, that's a worrying question that we're even having that conversation mm. because I do think that for all, everything that you say that is wrong with the British police force, and there have been isolated incidents I don't think that they are as militarized and as problematic as the US police force. Well, if you have, have ever punched a Nazi, yeah. uh, <laughs> do write into the usual address. <laughs> You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and this week's guest presenter, Anusha Kalian. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Why not send a Twitter message to Anoush, who is at Anoush underscore C, to tell her what your favourite reality TV show is. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 